So I think I said at the beginning of the retreat, this retreat actually has a quite a grand title, The Essential Teachings on the, of the Path of Awakening. So when we were thinking about that in formulating how we would teach on this retreat, we decided to base the teachings on the Eightfold Path, which is the fourth truth of the Four Noble Truths that form the heart of the Buddha's teaching. And just from that little few sentences, perhaps you can get a sense that the Buddha was a numbers guy. He loved lists. He was very orderly, very pragmatic. And so as soon as you dive into the Buddha's teachings, you'll hear about the two of this and the three of that and the four of this and the six of that, etc., etc. So here we are. The Eightfold Path uh, has eight factors to it. Um, and each one often has subsets. So we'll be diving in, we're diving into that during this retreat. So you know, we've already talked about the, uh, the, the path is usually thought of as having three baskets or three categories. Sila, Samadhi, Panya. Sila is ethical conduct. Samadhi is the meditation practice. And Panya is wisdom. So... Adrian and I talked about the meditation practice, about mindfulness, working with the hindrance as how to actually practice. Last night in talking about the three characteristics that Temple spoke of, that's considered to be in the wisdom basket, in uh, right view, right understanding. Tonight uh, I want to talk about, and tomorrow night we'll talk about sila, the ethical conduct part of the, the path. Tonight I want to talk about what I consider to be the engine of this Eightfold Path, and that's the first two path factors of right view and right intention, because they're considered to begin the path, that to actually walk this path of practice, this path of awakening. We need to understand and put into practice these two factors. But this path isn't just linear. It's also often depicted as a circle. And so right view and right intention, even though they begin the path, they also, they're also where the path ends as they get perfected, deepened, and developed. And even a circle is a somewhat limited way of understanding how the factors work because they all play off each other. It's not like you start you know, at A and you end up at Z. It's actually more intertwined than that. And we're always um, connecting with bringing more understanding to developing and practicing with all aspects of the path as we practice. But these first two factors are key because we have to have some understanding to begin, to know what is it that's being talked about here, what, what's being pointed to. And the, the first factor of right view is really where this wisdom comes in. It's the teaching about the truth of things. How, how, what is the actual truth with a capital T, the way things are? And in some ways, it's very impersonal. The, this kind of truth is true for me, it's true for you, it's true for everyone. Just like the three characteristics. They, they're, they're actually marks of existence. Everything, it said, has, has those characteristics. So they're impersonal in that way. But as this wisdom seeps in and matures, it then affects how we understand ourselves and how we act in the world, and it becomes very personal. It informs our actual being. So the wisdom, it's how the wisdom manifests. As we begin to understand uh, on this more impersonal level, this is the way a mind-body works, even though it feels very personal to us, um, it then manifests in this uh, movement of wise intention, the next path factor. And in this path factor of wise intention are the beautiful qualities of the heart, of compassion, of non-harming. Um, so these, as I said, often there are subsets under each of the factors. So right view is this beginning where we start to understand the truth of things in this kind of impersonal way. You could also say the teachings of the Buddha. Um, and that, in, uh, but then that leads to these beautiful qualities of the heart of renunciation, non-ill will, and non-harming. And I'll go more into those as we go through the talk tonight. And this really becomes the heart of our practice, refining our understanding and then how we express that in the world. Because we don't practice 
just to have nice sittings or to isolate ourselves in a retreat center, but actually to affect our lives, to affect our hearts, our minds, and how we are in the world. So this first path factor is right view or right understanding. Uh, Ditti is the Pali word for view. Um, And so it's samaditti. If you remember when I spoke on the first night about mindfulness, I talked about it as samasati, right or wise mindfulness. So it's the same word here, sama, samaditti. And if you remember, this word sama means right, not as in right or wrong, but right as in uh, good or onward leading, beneficial, wise, uh, leading to more and more freedom, right, in that sense. And so the common definitions of what that kind of understanding are things like Understanding the three characteristics that Temple spoke about last night. Understanding the teachings of karma, the teachings on cause and effect, on conditionality. Uh, Another deep teaching of the Buddha's dependent origination, very complex but powerful set of teachings of how this whole thing unfolds, both personally and impersonally, from ignorance leading to uh, suffering again and again and again. But it also includes and it's, at its heart, really, is understanding the Four Noble Truths. And what's interesting is understanding the Four Noble Truths is the definition of the first path factor, which is part of the eightfold path, which is the fourth path, the fourth factor of the Four Noble Truths. So you can see it's all intertwined, and they all kind of um, are layers of understanding, and there's a, there is a real synthesis here. It's kind of an amazing map that the Buddha created for how to understand and practice his teachings. So we often, you, you know, you've probably heard some about the Four Noble Truths if you're at all interested in this practice or in Buddhism, because people will often say, this is the heart of the Buddha's teachings. If Ajahn Sumedha will say, if we only had one teaching from the Buddha, it, would be, it should be the Four Noble Truths, because that contains everything, because you can unpack it and the whole path is there. But it's important to remember that the Four Noble Truths are not just what um, a card-carrying Buddhist remembers and sort of has in your pocket. Oh, I know the Four Noble Truths, you know, I've got it figured out. They're practices. It's a teaching about suffering and the end of suffering, that the Buddha says we need to understand and put into practice. Each of these four truths has a practice associated with it, that he says until he completely developed and penetrated those practices, he wasn't fully awakened. So not just the beliefs of Buddhists or a dogma, but actually practice. The first noble truth is the truth of dukkha. We usually translate as as suffering, as Temple said last night. It's also one of the characteristics, the hallmarks of existence. But that word suffering, even though it's it's okay, it doesn't kind of convey the whole range of what's meant by dukkha. And it doesn't create that, um, doesn't convey that everydayness of it, because suffering can seem kind of big and grand, you know, really suffering about this. But dukkha also includes um, the unreliability or unsatisfactory nature of experiences. Again, as Temple said, you know, that, that we can't expect to get lasting happiness out of things that are changing. This is the dukkha, the unreliability, the unsatisfactory nature of experience. One of the examples I've seen that kind of tries to, to point to the experience of dukkha in, in the ancient times, or actually now even in, in many countries, they would have ox carts with wooden wheels. And it would be very easy for one of those wheels to get out of round or have some uh, disfigurement. And every time the wheel went over that place, you can have it in a car if you have something you know, that's um, penetrated your tires, like that clunk clunk. And it's just kind of annoying and unsteadying, but persistent. It's just there, that sense of, of um, not quite rightness. And I also read recently from another teacher, his name Dr. Brazier, he has a book called Feeling Buddha that's a lot about the kind of um, sensory impact of, of practice. And he said he feels a 
better translation of the word dukkha is that things happen to us. Things happen to us. Which they do, right? So it includes the suffering things, but it includes everything. That we're impacted constantly by the world. And we're so sensitive that these impacts, even the what might seem to be pleasant ones, can have um, an unsteadying or un, un, unsatisfactory kind of impact on us. And excuse the language, you've seen that bumper sticker, shit happens, right? You know, this is, if you have a mind and a body, stuff happens that impacts you. And there's a significant portion of that stuff that's really difficult. That's dukkha. So just look at this retreat here. Are you having the retreat you hoped to have, wanted to have, your ideal of the retreat? I had talked to someone today, I hope he doesn't mind sharing, where you know, he's sitting in this retreat thinking, oh, I really want to do another retreat. You know, That retreat would be really good. It's like, oh, how about this retreat right here? But that's what we do, right? That's dukkha. It's like taking ourselves out of this moment and wanting another retreat. And just like, again, Temple said, you know, you plan your retreat, you you don't plan in the suffering, right? You don't plan in the knee ache or the heartache that comes. I'll retreat, I'll just get all squeaky clean and bright, and I'll go back and my friends will say, what happened to you? Where have you been? (laughs) A little more challenging than that, right? Well, the practice for this truth is to understand it to understand suffering. And I had another teacher sort of reframed that. He said, to stand under like a waterfall. Suffering happens. If we stand under it like a water, we just, this is what it's like to have a mind and a body, to have relationships and people we care about and work and all that. Um, and maybe you've felt that at times here. It's just like, oh, <laughs> you know. It's difficult at times, right? The body, the mind, the regimen that we undertake here. So we need a lot of patience with this and making a big space for the difficulty and really not feeding what we've talked about as that second arrow, which is all of the variations of why me? Why is this happening? It shouldn't be happening, not like this, you know, Another form of suffering, maybe, but not this form of suffering. Um, someone else's suffering looks better than my suffering. or you know, It shouldn't be this shape, or this form, or this much, or this, this, this long. Not me, not now. And that just exacerbates, right? That just adds to the suffering. The Buddha said, there's a cause of suffering. And that is tanha in Pali. The word is tanha. And it's usually translated as craving, but its essence, its essential meaning is an unquenchable thirst. So, you know, it's not saying that desire is all bad and wrong, we shouldn't feel or want anything, but it's pointing to that place in us that's always looking to get something to fill the hole here that can never be filled. It, it, it's, it's, there's that sense of never satisfied. You know, we get the thing, and I'm referring to Temple. It was a great talk he gave last night. You know, the phone. Great, I got my new phone. Ah, the scratch. Dukkha, right? We're always wanting things to be a certain way, and they're not. This is craving. He, and it's interesting that the Buddha defined the cause of suffering as craving, not aversion and not delusion or ignorance, but they're all really subsumed in that because aversion is not wanting something to happen and delusion underlies it all. That idea, that fantasy that there's something out there that will make us happy. So they're all interwoven. But when we really see this clearly, we see the suffering and the cause of suffering and Again, how much of it we create. There's the first dart, the first arrow, loss, pain of the body, sickness, whatever. Can't control that. That will happen. But the second arrow, that's where the mindful practice can really help us actually begin to let go, not feed that so much. So the wisdom comes in. We let go, and that's the third noble truth that it's possible to end suffering, that suffering, because it's conditioned, can actually be unconditioned. 
And the Buddha's penetration of this was to completely unwind and let go of abandoned uh, suffering because he penetrated so deeply. For us, we can just see it in a moment. See how we're contracting. See how we're pushing away. See how we're living in a fantasy world. And you've probably all had that moment where you just let that go. Oh, thank you. I don't have to keep feeding that or being fooled by that. That is the third noble truth, which leads to the fourth noble truth, the path that I'm talking about in this whole retreat is pointing to, um, the path that leads to the end of suffering. So that's just a real short tour through this first path factor of, of wisdom, three characteristics that Temple spoke about last night, four noble truths essential also to its understanding. As we start to kind of figure things out, again, somewhat on this impersonal level, this is true for everyone, but we all have our own, we all have to come to our own understanding, insight into this. As that develops, as I said, it then influences or shapes how we act in the world, what, what, um, what we value and how we manifest that. So the second path factor, samasankapa, is wise intention or right intention. We began the retreat talking about intention. You had to have a lot of intention to get here, and Temple invited you to um, reflect on that because we need to remember at times when you're like jingling the car keys in your pocket and thinking, boy, it'd be so easy just to get out of here. What brought you here in the first place? You know, hopefully it's kept you here, you know, what, whatever that intention was. Another friend and teacher, Carol, often uses the example here of Frodo in Lord of the Rings. Remember that story? You know, he's given this ring. He doesn't know what it is, but he's told he has to take it somewhere, right? Out of here to Mordor, this horrifying place. And so he makes, takes his big gulp. First he's going, me? Why me? The second arrow, why me? Not me. I'm not, no. But then he says, okay, me. And he starts taking this ring somewhere. Well, that first intention that he gets going with doesn't last him very long, does it? Because he's assailed by all this stuff, by these forces that are trying to get the ring and kill him and distract him and all of that. He has to keep renewing his intention. And as the, the, the situations get more dire, more challenging, his intention has to keep upping to meet that so that he can finally get to the end of that journey. So I hope your days here hasn't, haven't felt like a trip to Mordor and, you know, the, that fiery ring. But there's a little bit of that, right? Of just needing to keep saying, I'm, I'm keeping going. You know, one more step. Staying present. One more breath. One more walking period. We need to keep going. I think I, I always talk about this. I heard it from Bhikkhu Bodhi. All you need to be successful is to start and to keep going. But, as Yogi Berra says, unless you know where you're going, you might end up somewhere else. So, you know, you really have to have a sense of what's your intention here, um, what's the direction. Once the Dharma hook has gotten in, that can really shape what your values are and where you want to go. So intention is really key. Intention has two levels of meaning. It's, it, it's, in, it's a moment-to-moment thing, and in Buddhist understanding, every moment has intention in it, even literally to blink an eye or to think, though we don't want to get to that level of detail. It's too much to, to pay attention to, but it's said to be there. We can know that or see that. But what I'm really talking about tonight is the bigger picture. Sama Sankama, Sankapa is really the intention more like aspiration, more like what are the... Um, I, uh, um, direction, or, or how do we want to shape our lives, what's helpful, what's beneficial, and to get clear about that. The Tibetans say something like, everything rests on the tip of intention. All of our path of practice, our lives. Unless we clarify intention, again, we will end up somewhere else. Because you're always acting out of intention. Everything you do is out of intention, but most of the time we're totally unaware, both of the intention and what's shaping it. 
mindfulness helps us to get clear about that, both in a very moment-to-moment level, but also in this way we step back on retreat, kind of push the reset button, make some space to really see what what do we value, what's closest to our heart. And so we can start to work more skillfully with that. So often at this time of retreat, we start getting these questions about, well, how do I take this home? Or what does that look like? And especially the $64,000 one, I really know it'd be good for me to sit every day, but how do I do that? Tell me how I can do that. And I say, I can't, because it will only happen if you, cre- if you create and value an intention around that. It'll never happen because you think you should or because you want to or because you have some idea about it. But if you can clarify the intention and keep that alive, then your actions will come out of that. So we have to ask, to what end? You know, what, what are we doing? This, this that we're doing here, or any big movement in our lives? What are we looking to cultivate? What, what are our values here? Because um, we see, unless we clarify that, it doesn't happen. You know, how many New Year's resolutions have you made? How many languages have you wanted to learn? How many diets or exercise regimens have you started? And, you know, where are they now? And maybe some you kept up, but you really see they only kept up, keep up if you keep clarifying that intention, that motivation. And again, here, it's not out of beating ourselves up, should, 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 but it's because what you really value and want for yourself. So we need to understand this, what's really important for us and how do we manifest that. I know for myself, when I sat my first retreat, oh, those many years ago, early 80s in India, didn't have a clue what I was getting into. I tried to learn meditation from a book. Um, And someone said, if you want to learn to meditate, go sit with S.N. Goenka, he'll teach you. And boy, did he teach me. You know, some of you have been on those retreats. They're 10 days. There's no walking meditation. There is no yoga. There is no, you know, be kind. It's like sit for hours on end. And I was in India. I didn't have a a zafu or a zabutan. I had a towel and a little, you know, square sort of rush mat to sit on. It was incredibly difficult. I don't know how, you know, I I just didn't have anywhere to go, so I stuck it out. But... um, (laughs) Because it was, you know, in the middle of nowhere, how I, it was even quite an adventure finding the place. Because it wasn't at Igat Puri where he normally uh, taught it was a new center. But anyway, um, I'd, all I remember was how difficult, I shouldn't say that. I remember how difficult it was. But one thing I do remember is something, and probably not one thing, I don't remember the teachings, but the message or what I took in, the insight was, you mean I don't have to suffer? It's optional? Or you mean I don't have to cause other people suffering? I can actually work with my speech and my actions out of this sincerity of intention and not keep doing that? I, I had no clue that that was possible. It was like a revelation that I could actually train my mind and heart and not cause as much suffering to myself and others that I had been. And so I was really lucky. I was in my mid-twenties, backpack, no obligations. I was able to just go to one retreat after another. And from that time on, all of the major decisions in my life I made about how can I stay close to the Dhamma? How can I stay close to Dhamma people? Because I saw that I loved them. They were different. They were kind and caring and compassionate and wise. How can I stay close to teachers and get teachings? So I could make these decisions. I had a boyfriend at the time, and he wanted to just travel through uh, Europe and go to Italy and Venice and all those places that you know you hear about. And I said, no, I want to go manage this retreat center. And at that retreat center, I met my future husband. And then another friend wanted to go travel to Ireland, and I got this invitation to start a meditation community in this, what turned out to be a beautiful place called Sharpham. And I chose to do that, and I felt bad letting these people down. They wanted me to come with them, and I said, no, I want to be close to these people. 
But my whole life got shaped out of that, from meeting my future husband. He moved into the community too. We started a relationship, and 30 years later, we're, we're still married. So it shaped my whole life when I came here to the States. I didn't really know anyone, didn't know, you know, I didn't think I had many good job prospects. I started volunteering at what was Spirit Rock back then, IMW, was a volunteer, part-time worker, ended up running the place for five years. So my whole life was really out of that, I want to be close to the Dhamma, how do I do that? And I, I know I'm blessed that I was able to do that, but it's because I made those decisions out of that intention. So. It can really be a question for us. How do we do this? How do we keep... If the, what you've discovered here or know about practice in these teachings, how do you align your life with that? It's not like, how do I fit the Dharma into my life? But how does the Dharma become your life? And again, I'm not saying, you know, you should all just go on retreat and give everything up or whatever. But really, it's more about these values, this sense of presence, this sense of aliveness. How do, you, how do you develop that? The values that the Buddha said to align with are listed here in this second path factor, Samasankapa. He said the values that are really important to create to intentionally a renunciation or letting go, non-ill will, which in its positive firm, form gets manifested as goodwill or metta, and non-harming, which in its positive form gets manifested as compassion. said, so this is what's really important for us. And as we deepen in the wisdom, this is what will naturally, uh, how our hearts will naturally respond. It's interesting, though, that in their um, initial framing, they're framed in the negative as in refraining, renunciation, letting go, non-ill will, non-harming. And at first it's like, hmm, it's not very, I don't know, heart opening, but there's a real skill in that because it's always possible, always possible for us to refrain from acting out of anger. You mightn't think it is, but it is. It's always possible to refrain, restrain from that harsh word or that act of uh, non-generosity of harming. It's not always possible to feel metta. We've said that in the teachings. You know, you can't, there's no switch. But the less we feed that tendency to ill will, to holding on, to cruelty, the less that gets fed, it will diminish. And in its place naturally, the positive qualities will develop. That will naturally come. So it's actually a skillful way of looking at it. We can certainly think of them more in the positive aspects as what we really want for ourselves. We want, we want to, the bit to let go, to be um, generous, we want to be kind, we want to be compassionate. But to always know that we can start from that place of uh, restraint. So the first of these, the factors, the intentions, is re- that of renunciation. And again, this is not a there's not many magazines titled Renunciation, right? You know, there's plenty and there's, you know, good stuff and there's the Millionaire's Magazine or whatever, you know. It's all about stuff, right? And experience and looks and fashion or whatever, you know. Even the Fisherman's Magazine, it's all about the best fishing rod or whatever it is. It's always about more. Well, Renunciation says, what about the value of less? Not as some kind of penance but really so we can know what we truly value. Because the message of this culture is so much rush, 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 bye, 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 be, be, be. You know, out there, the same message is going on. Here, it's a very different message, right? It's stop, slow down, let go, simplify, appreciate what you have, appreciate nature, empty out instead of always filling up. So renunciation can actually be a kind of joyful letting go of, because we start to know what's really important, not what society tells us we should have, how we should be, but what our values are in this. Suzuki Roshi said, renunciation is not giving up the things of this world, but accepting that they go away. 
So it's just that open hand. Yes, again, Temple said, it's changing, it's going. I think I said in one of my talks, oh, uh, dukkha is rope burn, is holding on to what's, what's actually going all the time. And it's the opposite of clinging. It's the opposite of craving, which is a source of suffering. Again, see the integration. Our willingness to let go, and as it manifests also as generosity, really starts to reduce that tendency to stinginess, to holding on, the me and the mine. And we never know what will open up as we let go. You know, it's not about get rid, you shouldn't have sort of a negation. There's this beautiful Zen poem, When my hut burnt down, I gained an unobstructed view of the night sky. It's like, in the space. (laughs) What? Doesn't sound good to you? (laughs) The moonlit sky. So we start to develop a wiser relationship to things. I mean, we need things. Things, you know, things support us in our life. But not out of this unquenchable thirst. Not out of this... um, never-ending search for the thing that's going to do it for us. What's, what's really beneficial for us? What's in our best interest? And we could do, I could do a whole talk about this. It's not just about stuff. It's also about our views and opinions. Often the biggest sense of identification, ownership, my thoughts, my ideas, and the, the need to be right. So much divisiveness, separation, antagonism, just around this. So we also can let go of that, our certainty, our, you know, being on the right side. And so it invites reflection. You know, what, what is true happiness? And understanding that what might be happiness for us is not necessarily happiness for someone else. We have this, again, see it in a bigger picture, more impersonally. And just to recognize, you know, here you've lived for almost a week with what you bought in a single suitcase and this little room, you know, with a bed and a lamp. It's been okay, right? You had everything you needed. What do you pick up when you go back home? This is one of the things that retreats help us to to look at. And, you know, I kind of joked a little bit about getting all shiny and clean, but there's a way in which you do on retreat. And when you go home, everything will sparkle a little bit because you're not seeing through those occluded eyes. You're actually seeing clearly and seeing fresh. So pay attention to what it is that you pick up and see, is it really what you want for yourself as you go on? Bhikkhu Bodhi says, real renunciation is not a matter of compelling ourselves to give up things still inwardly cherished, but of changing our perspective on them so they no longer bind us. And in that he's even saying they can still be there. We're just not bound to them in the same way. We're not obsessed with them in the same way. So a whole practice around that. The next of the factors is that of non-ill will, which transforms into goodwill, which we can know of as metta, what we've been practicing here. As I said, it's always possible, always possible to restrain those acts of ill will. Not easy. It can be so easy to say that cutting comment or that snipey thing, that, that th- uh, you know, let the resentment or the irritation come out. And whatever small satisfaction we might get from that usually isn't worth the price we pay, both in our own sensitivity, but the harm it can do others. Again, not to bring in judging or anything about this, but really um, to see that this is a value that we can have of not harming through our speech and our actions. One of the most important places to begin this cultivation of goodwill is yes for others to not not act out of ill will, but the ill will towards ourselves is one of the most difficult and harmful expressions of ill will that I know of. And so many people live with that, live with a sense of ill will towards themselves, lack of self-acceptance, self 
excuse me, self-judgment, even self-hatred, this constant bombardment of criticism, judging, and evaluation. It's really very, very painful. We can make the intention to lessen that ill will. Really very helpful, even necessary, imperative, that you can do that. It's what the Buddha advises us to do and what is actually necessary for our spiritual path and practice to develop. So what would that look like to let go of ill will towards yourself if you have that as a tendency of mind? Some people don't, but many of us do. What stories about yourself would you have to let go of? As Adrian said the other night, what limiting beliefs about yourself could you be free of? What would you be like then? We can, you know, hear, even hear this and go, oh, not, not going to happen with me. It's too deeply entrenched. It's, it, it, you know, it feels like a wisdom, right? It feels like the truth. I just don't deserve to be happy. I'm not good enough. Or maybe I could love myself after the 10-point improvement program. You know, I do this retreat, and then I do a meta retreat, and then I go on a diet, and then the exercise, and then I learn Italian, and then, you know, I'm better at doing whatever it is, and maybe then I'll love myself. What would it be like right now? As I said in the meta the other day, may I love and accept myself just as I am. What would that look like? A big part of that is just accepting. This is who I am. This is how I manifest right now in the world. Doesn't mean there can't be improvement, but to start from a place of acceptance, of kindness. So we accept ourselves, our bodies, our looks, our whatever, everything about us. Start from that place of acceptance. That's the A of RAIN that we've talked about. We recognize the pattern, whatever's happening, and we accept this is how it is. We can use mindfulness to actually look at this tendency of mind to be judging, critical, negative, always with that edge of harshness. For some of us, it's so familiar, we don't even recognize we're doing it. And when we see it, when it gets revealed on retreat, it's like, oh, we feel the the pain of that. But that feeling, the pain of it, we're back at the first noble truth, understanding that. Understanding its causes is how we begin to unwind it. One of the things um, I think it's helpful to look at if you have this tendency of mind is that the habit got fed for a reason. It's a habit. It's a conditioned pattern to judge and evaluate negatively, critically, especially yourself. So you develop that as a pattern and probably in some way as a defense. It was a protection. It served you in some way to believe that you weren't okay. We need to start to challenge that. Why would I do that? What's the pleasure or the hook in that belief for me? And what we can often see is that we needed that or it worked or it made sense when we were 5 or 10 or even 15. It doesn't make sense now. But the pattern is so deep, we keep playing it out We keep and feeding it making it right, making it true. And so to look at what are the beliefs behind that. A big one can often be, you know, just basically I'm not a good person, so I should beat myself up and keep telling myself I'm not a good person. Or it kind of aligns us with whatever authority figures we're still carrying around with us who told us we weren't okay and we didn't want to threaten them by standing up for ourselves, so we believed it. It can justify... Um, our shyness and wanting to hide. It's like, I shouldn't, you know, stand up and say, uh, I I know this or I can do this because I'm not good enough. So I, I can just hide in my little cozy dark corner and not really manifest in the world. We kind of feel it keeps us out of trouble, you know, because I'm so critical and judgmental, other people won't notice me or, you know, I'll just keep hiding here, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll stay out of trouble. Lots of reasons that we feed this, but it's gotten distorted. It's gotten so it's actually undermining our capacity to really be present in the world. A lot to say about this, but one of the ways mindfulness can be key, we've already talked about this, whatever judging thought you have is just a thought. 
It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. If you believe it, if you buy into it, there's the world. Critical, negative, solid, unchanging. You look at it clearly with mindfulness, it's, it's more fleeting than a bubble, more fleeting than the morning fog. Really, in some ways, as simple as that. And I know unwinding it is never that simple, but just to have that perspective is so helpful. And then as we, the wisdom starts to grow and we start to trust these teachings or whatever it is that's bringing you more alive, you start to trust that more than this voice that says, you're not good enough, you're not okay, you'll never do this, you, you know, everyone else but you kind of thing. It's like, no, I know this place of goodness or wholeness or gratitude or well-being. Just as valid and then more valid and then completely undermines that tendency to judging. We learnt that behavior. We can unlearn it. There's a book I found really helpful um, about how we learnt this and how to unlearn it. It's uh, by Byron Brown called Soul Without Shame. And he says, the only real alternative to self-judgment is knowing the truth about who you are. If you have a deep belief that you are worthless, you must discover where that belief came from and why you believe it to be true. Once you know deep inside you with a direct and felt sense that you have inherent value and are fully acceptable to yourself, then you will free yourself from the need from positive judgment and approval from others and from your own judging voice. So we have to find this within ourselves, this sense of well-being, of happiness, and trust that. Let that be the guiding intention towards goodwill, towards kindness, Beginning here, it has to begin here, and then we can express it outward. The last of these factors is the, the, the wish or the intention towards non-harming, harmlessness, non-cruelty, uh, which then manifests as compassion as its positive aspect. And this is um, centered around what we call ethical conduct or sila, Uh, which we'll talk about tomorrow night, how we actually are in the world, the kind of guidelines that support us to live in a way that doesn't harm us and doesn't harm others. For us as practitioners, the center of that is the precepts that we took on our first night together. So we create this sense of harmony in our culture. But as these become more important to us, as we live by them, we, they become a gift. They're not kind of a constriction, you know, the set of rules you have to follow, but actually a gift we give ourselves. We give others the gift of freedom from fear, that we won't harm them, and we give ourselves the gift of freedom from remorse. We're not going to, you know, do actions that we keep beating ourselves up for and judging and blaming ourselves. We talk about the bliss of blamelessness. So we'll talk about this more tomorrow night and go into these precepts and how to live uh, with them and by them because they're really central to this clarity of intention that will bring more peace and harmony into our lives. As Albert Einstein said, the ideals which have lighted my way and time after time given me new courage to face life cheerfully have been kindness, beauty, and truth. Just these really essential human values. And as he said, given me new courage to face life cheerfully. We will have adversity. Just because we understand these teachings or put them into practice doesn't mean that difficult things won't happen. They will. The Buddha had difficult things happen. People tried to kill him, slander him. There was dissension in the, in the community but he didn't suffer in the same way that we suffer because his mind was, he had that courage to face what was happening. So the positive expression of the non-harming is compassion. I started talking about the first noble truth, dukkha. The proximate cause 
for the awakening of compassion is suffering. Compassion is said to be the trembling of the heart in response to suffering. So the more we open to suffering, not wallow in it, not you know, keep heaping it on, but just seeing this as a truth, as a manifestation in every life, not just my life, I don't have more or less than others, um, that there is suffering in life. And, and as we come to understand it, we're not so beset by it as in, you know, especially that second arrow, it shouldn't be happening, why me? There is this truth of suffering. Difficult things will happen, but we feel with it, we open our hearts to that, both to our own suffering, but also the suffering of others. Compassion means to feel with. Our hearts get very tender. I mean, they're basically tender, but we armor over them, right? We think that's what we need to do to get by in the world. And so many of you talked about sort of touching into this tenderness, this sensitivity. This is what happens on retreat. We let go of some of the armoring, the social persona that we we put on every morning as we get up and go about our business. You drop that a little here. You might feel that tenderness, really literally physically. If you've done any exercise with a heart rate monitor, you'll see you just have to raise your arm and your heart responds, right? It's so responsive to what's needed. Now that's kind of the physical heart, the energetic heart. The compassionate heart is equally responsive. And the more we're willing to feel our own suffering and open to that, the compassion will come to others' suffering. And then, they, and then the wisdom comes as we understand the suffering more. And this is how they feed each other, the wisdom and compassion. The more we understand how this whole process works, this mind and this body, but not separate from that mind and body. We start to understand through the paying attention, the close attention, this, this mindfulness lets us play with moment after moment. Oh, that's what happens when I have this thought or this experience, or I feed that. I get all contracted or knotted up or anxious. Or this is what happens when I let go, when I don't feed that negativity or that sense of insufficiency. I feel spacious and open and grounded. We see for ourselves. So the wisdom and the compassion, they said to be the two wings of the bird, and mindfulness is the body. And we... we um, Practice with, deepen, and know both of them. And they feed and support each other. And so the expression of wisdom is this movement of the heart to renunciation, to goodwill, to compassion. It's the natural expression of the heart. And we see it in this world, in that world, in this world out there, if we stop and pay attention like you've been invited to do here. Last summer I spent some time in the Grand Tetons, this beautiful mountain range outside of Jackson. And there's a a beautiful museum there, the Lawrence S. Rockefeller Museum Preserve. It doesn't have a lot of stuff in it. It's more about nature and beauty. And there's this poem etched in the granite there that just spoke to me about where we are in the practice in this retreat now. It's called A Meditation on Phelps Lake, which is a beautiful lake at the foot of the mountains. A feather floats on Phelps Lake, a cradle of light rocking with the breeze. Wind speaks through the pines, light animates granite. An eagle soars, its shadow crosses over us. All life is intertwined. We see the great peaks mirrored in water, stillness wholeness, renewal. Reflection leads us to restoration. Nature quiets the mind by engaging with an intelligence larger than our own. Mindful of different ways of being, our awareness as a species shifts. We recognize the soul of the land as our own. The path of wisdom invites us to walk with a humble heart recognizing the dance between diversity and unity, action and restraint. 
The scales of nature always seek equilibrium. A feather can tip the balance. So let's just sit for a moment, let the words settle. Stillness, wholeness, renewal. Reflection leads us to restoration. Nature quiets the mind by engaging with an intelligence larger than our own. The path of wisdom invites us to walk with a humble heart. And thank you for your attention. We're about half an hour for walking meditation and invite you to come back for our last sit where we chant together. It's actually nice to, in the silence to bring our voices together in the chanting. So if you haven't made it yet, invite you to come and join us in the evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.